0: The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit Christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, Louise Bourgeois' Textile Sculptures, Soft Power in Saudi Arabia, and Gerhard Richter at 90. As a Louise Bourgeois show opens at the Hayward Gallery in London, ahead of others in Basel and New York, I take a tour of five of the French-American artists' late works with Jerry Gorovoy, who worked with Bourgeois for 30 years. Our chief contributing editor, Gareth Harris, has travelled to Saudi Arabia, where a host of contemporary art shows have just opened. But does this, as some commentators have said, mark a new era in the country's approach to culture? And in this episode's Work of the Week, Dietmar Elger, the curator of the Gerhard Richter Archive in Dresden, Germany, tells us about Fels, an abstract painting from 1989 at the heart of a new show curated by Richter at the Albertinum in the East German city. Before all that, a new series of our sister podcast, A Brush With, continues. In the podcast, I talk to leading artists in depth about the influences and cultural experiences that shape their life and work. The latest episode is A Brush With Charles Ray, and it's followed next week by A Brush With Alison Katz, the Canadian painter. So do subscribe wherever you get your podcast to hear that, and to explore the archive of more than 30 conversations. Now, a host of shows of the work of Louise Bourgeois are opening in the first half of this year. Next week, the Kunstmuseum in Basel brings Bourgeois together with the American artist Jenny Holzer for a unique show, while in April, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York hosts what it hopes will be a revelatory show of Bourgeois's paintings. But the first of this spate of exhibitions opens this week at the Hayward Gallery in London. The woven Child looks at Bourgeois' prolific use of fabric in the last two decades of her career before her death in 2010. Textiles were of Particular significance through her life, partly because her mother was a tapestry restorer, and those textiles were then sold in a gallery in Paris run by Bourgeois' father. Characteristically, the artist used fabric in a huge range of visionary, psychologically charged, and deeply symbolic sculptural creations. Cherry Gorovoy was Louise Bourgeois' assistant for the last 30 years of her life and is now president of the Eastern Foundation set up after her death. I took a tour with him of some of the key sculptures in the Hayward Show, among the greatest works of her father. Final years. Jerry, we're standing in front of In Respite in the Louise Bourgeois show at the Hayward Gallery. This is the earliest sculpture in the show and it sets the tone
1: in lots of ways, doesn't it? Tell us about this work. This piece sort of marks the slow progression in Louise's work where she is incorporating objects from her life and found objects. Most of the work, let's say, prior to the 70s was pretty much abstract. But there was this movement to incorporate things. So in this piece where you have all these threads, so it happened that Louise got a studio that was a former sewing factory, and they made blue jeans, and they sort of moved, I think, to Asia. So when she took over this studio, which was this concrete space in downtown Brooklyn, there was all the remnants of this sewing factory. And there were all these spools of thread. You know, they stayed there for a while, but that was the impetus, really, that Louise wanted to do something with it. And so she made this armature where she basically rested these spools of thread. They sort of, from the thread, she sort of unwind each spool and threaded to a needle, which is then piercing this very pink form, which is ambiguous. I mean, you'll see this pink uh, form in many works. It obviously stands in for the figure. It's a little bit of sexuality, but it's a little bit of this marking of time. I mean, the thread, in a way, was just a perfect sort of material for... Her thematic concerns, which is a sense of time, the sense of repair, reparation. She came from a tapestry, the idea of sewing in a way. So it just all sort of came together.
0: I'd like to ask about this idea of reparation, because she talked a lot about this, didn't she? And she associates that with her mother. Her mother was, was repairing, literally repairing tapestries. She was in this tapestry workshop. But also, when we look at this, you talked about this sort of pendulous rubber form. It's pierced quite brutally with these needles.
1: So it's not just about repair. It's about damage too, isn't it? Well, it's a little bit like in other pieces, she uses the same sort of technique and in a piece called Conscious and Unconscious, a series of these large vitrines. So, I mean, the needle definitely is a marker of time. It is maybe a, a seed of a trauma, a seed of a certain memory or incident that's sort of, you know, that is piercing something in a way for sure, but it's also marking something. I think it's this idea that we have moments in our life which really are quite significant to our psychic life and to our relationship to other people. It does not necessarily have to be trauma, you know, it could it could be trauma, it could be anxiety, it could be jealousy, rivalry, but there, there are moments in time where the body is really imprinted with psychological damage. Indeed. I think that's one thing. You know, but it's also, as you mentioned, her mother. I think there was this, you know, move not only to the found object, but move to this identification with her mother. And that only came about really in the 1990s, where there was this shift. You know, there's a lot written about her antagonistic relationship with her father. But at a certain point, she's moving away, and sort of the last 20 years of her life, the father did not loom very large at all. I mean, unless someone brought it up, she wouldn't really refer to her father so much. It was really this idea of the mother. And in one of those sort of
0: key motifs illustrating the mother is a spider. So let's go and look at a work which includes one now. Okay.
1: So Lady in Waiting is part of a series of cells and a subgroup portrait cells that Louise made beginning in the 2000s. Or actually maybe even a little earlier. So this one you see basically a spider sitting in a chair. And the chair has, is covered in tapestry and so is a spider And from the window of this architectural setting are these five spools of thread. The number five for Louise always had this reference to the family. She grew up in a family of five, and she had three sons. So there's this sort of idea. And then the threads, you know, go into the mouth of the spider. Now, this is Lady in Waiting, which is basically... Related to a previous piece, this idea of uh, eugenie Grande and the, the of the Balzac novel and but the idea Louise always felt that she never lived the life sh- she wanted, and she kept waiting and waiting, and she was waiting for something to happen. she moved, she made work and all this so it 's this idea that fear and anxiety probably um, kept her from living the life at least that she fantasized or the life that she really wanted and so you have this idea that the spider is sort of almost blending into the environment, like, like almost a defensive camouflage thing. Mm. Because the spider was an ode to her mother, but she also associated the spider with her own creative process. The spider builds its web out of its own body, and it's used to trapping. But and Louise felt that she, the sculpture has to come out of the body. The relationship to the body is one of the key things. She's got to feel it when she's making work or art. She has to feel it through the body that she is expressing what she wants. I wonder if we might talk a bit about process while you're talking
0: about that. So can you tell me about that, the process of how this came together? Would Louise work with assistants? So
1: this here would have the tapestry. What Louise would do is that Louise had some tapestries from her background, but then as she wanted to work, then she would get more tapestries to fill in. So here, what she did was this chair she found, or, you know, and then she would cut the tapestry and pin it both on the sculpture and on the chair. And then she had an assistant who was a sewing person who was able to sew it on after her. And there
0: is sort of very specific elements to this that are sort of key elements of the cells, particularly where wood is used,
1: the sort of distressed nature of the materials. Well, when she started to, in the 1990s, when the cells began, as she was moving to to incorporate her own objects, she wanted to create an architectural setting that could house it that she could control, it would set the scale, and so that everything within the piece is confined. With She didn't have to depend on the museum space or a gallery space or someone's house. All the coordinates she was able to control. You know, she preferred claustrophobic spaces anyway. You know, she said, at least with a claustrophobic space, you, you know your limits in a strange way. So I think... You know, everything with Louise, first there's the emotional and psychological impetus, but then there's the reality of making something, and it's a give and take. You know, Louise said you want to do this, and the material does that, or you cut something wrong, and you need to. So there is this process. You know, she always described it, and I've quoted many times the idea that, you know, she's on a journey without a destination. She knows she's going in the right way, but she doesn't know what the piece will end up, and it's always, you know, there's always this struggle. Well, she attracted to ambiguity as well because that's one
0: thing I love about the work. I know some people might want more resolution, but for me, it's so pregnant with atmosphere, with enigma. There is an well, ambiguity. The
1: contradictory there. impulses, I would right. say, is really this <laughs> idea between she could love you and she could hate you. She loved her mother, and yet she was resentful of her mother. She loved her father, and she hated her father. I think those kinds of things are those contradictory, where these things need to be together, but there are actually opposites. And how do you hold them together? That's the psychic split. That's the contradiction. That's the anxiety, in a strange way, because there's always a tug. Let's go down into the lower gallery.
0: We're now surrounded by two works which are called Couples. And these are these
1: black bodies, but both of them feature prosthetic limbs. Tell us about these. So these were actually first shown in St. Pancras, up at the Bell Tower in London. But, you know, this idea of Couples... Louise always had this fear of abandonment which was a very early trauma that she had and really was she never really got over it so it's the idea that she wanted the couples to be together forever inseparable on the other hand it's a combination I think the two pieces the one with the prosthetic arm is a much more aggressive much more maybe sort of sadist kind of thing it's locking it making sure it's not going to go away but is willing to maybe inflict damage to hold it together and the other piece you see the the woman underneath she 's got a leg she's much more passive she's more like it's, it's more passive, so you have this sort of sadist they are passive and active in a strange way, but so she had this idea to bring things together the, this whole phase of her life the, is the opposite of cutting and chipping away is actually bringing things together i mean you, you see that in a, in a lot of the works and but you know like the prosthetic devices like every thing Louise does. It has multiple references. It's never one thing. I think that's what gives the work a certain complexity and a certain kind of, um, you're not quite clear what's going on because there's multiple things going on. I mean, her sister had a a bad leg. She basically talked about when she worked at the Louvre, she was a docent at the Louvre, and she said all the soldiers in World War I who were wounded were guaranteed a job by the French government. And so she said she would go down to the cafeteria and there'd be, half the place would be amputees eating and all that, and she just found it difficult. But then she lived near a prosthetic maker. And then her neighbor next to her had a prosthetic. So there are all these things of different chapters of life where that becomes a form. But for her, it was the idea also positive. I mean, the idea is like, you have to figure out how to survive. You know, So if you need a a peg leg, or you need this, I mean, there is this will to survive. There is a way. You need a crutch. You need you know, you need a way to stand up and you need to function. That's how you get through life. You've got to figure out how you're going to survive. What do you need to do to get through the day and live? Let's go upstairs.
0: Now, in Lady in Waiting, we saw a rather diminutive version of the
1: spider. Here we have a monumental one, and this is called Spider. Tell us about this work. So, the spider was an ode to her mother, and you see the eggs in the belly of this large spider. But what she wanted to do is really make the web into architecture. And you see the two bones, so that's how you know, you know the spider's web is used to trap for food. So she's created, again, her architecture. You are meant to enter this and sit in the chair and be under the protection of the mother. And it has also many narratives going on within it. You know, but it's the idea of memory, of time, smell, bringing back memory. You have her bottle of Chalimar, which is the perfume that she wore. Um, you have panels. You know, like the panel on the floor, you see the genital was cut out.
0: Yeah, I wondered about that. Was it cut out, Was is it serendipity, or was it
1: deliberate? The biggest buyers for tapestries when they were being restored were the Americans, the newly rich Americans, but they didn't want genitalia on their walls, so their mother would cut out the genitals and put a flower there. And you see the insertion of these flowers here, which is, you know... So everything sort of, everything in every piece sort of reverberates in another piece and continues, but... You know, it's about memory. It's about time, the passing of time. There are trinkets and lockets, aren't there? Yeah, hanging and those are again. markers of time, certain events where she went are commemorated in that. And, you know, she has the cupping jars on the left of the wall, which is what she did to her mother. She took care of her mother, who was quite ill. You know, she always saw the spiders dainty, but also very clever and sort of very, um, you know, very friendly. In the Fabric Restoration
0: Workshop, is it right that Louise, the young Louise, would draw the feet yes, on Yes, that's tapestries. why you have the
1: panel of the foot on the left, because Wonderful. most of the tapestries had their most damage on the bottom. And so Louise would come in and draw the feet that then would be rewoven.
0: And And obviously, as with many of the spiders, you have the eggs in the belly of the spider. Here they're wrapped. What's the significance of the fabric wrap?
1: You're just protected. There's like a, you know, almost like a, like a skin, like an egg in a way, because they're, they're glass, the eggs are actually glass, and this is this sort of fleshy sort of coating. They're her stockings, right. basically.
0: Did she ever articulate why
1: she really wanted to explore the mother so much in those final well, years? Well, that's the thing. I think it was an unconscious move towards the mother because I think she was getting old. There are other bodies of work where there's all these pregnant women and gouaches, and you have a whole room downstairs of mother and child, right? Well, Louise is in her, she's not looking to have another kid. It is this relationship to her mother, that she's looking for a mother to take care of her. She's thinking about her own mother. I mean, Louise never talked about death. She would never really talk about it. But I think she realized that she was getting more fragile. I think that was the other impetus for this whole clothes thing. She had held on to all these clothes and garments that belonged to her mother. And I think she said, well, I don't want these things have such memory, They have such meaning. And if I put them in the work, they're going to last longer than my own physicality. And so they're all these sort of fighting against the passage of time, but also wrapping certain things up in a way.
0: That's fascinating. Well, let's go and see your work now, which definitely alludes to death at least. We're in the final room of the show, and it's a body of work that was produced right at the end of Louise's life. And in this particular work, it seems very, very potent with imagery, Relating to death, we what looks like a mortuary slab is—is that—is that that too literal interpretation?
1: I think I I think Louise would object to that interpretation. <laughs> you know, she's using her berets which she wore her whole life. And so they are clustered like this multiple breasted figure in a strange way. I don't think the reference to a mortuary slab is not it's part of this whole series about the passage of time and but it's also like a landscape to her she made these breast landscapes and all that. It's the most figurative of these last four vitrines for sure. But I think to her is more this peaceful sort of, you know, repetition, this idea of growth, a lot of these the rest of the works deal with progression and growth, and um, these are like pods, they're like seeds that are growing and all that. I think there's multiple residents. As I said, it's definitely figurative, but I know she never referred to this as death. As I said, she never really talked about that.
0: But what it does have, and I think this is something which maybe in the emphasis on the psychic trauma and everything else people miss, is lots of humor.
1: Yeah, well. I think Louise is sort of, you know, Louise is trying to resolve something in the work. She's not trying to disturb anyone. She's not trying to shock anyone. And it, Louise had a sense of humor. She liked to tease. She had this sort of black humor in a way where she could be very sarcastic and she would be, you know, she, she's very witty, very seductive and witty for sure. There's a range to the work which I think expresses the range that she had as, as a person, complex person, you know, very up and down, very, very uneven, very aggressive, very emotional, and I think as she got older, you know, the sort of, the aggressiveness in her, and she was quite aggressive, you know, sort of subsided. You get older, you can't have so many tantrums, you know, <laughs> you, can't, you can't sustain it because physically, on the body, it, it takes its toll. But I think, as I said, bringing things together, you know, like she wants to bring the berets together. There's this idea of, as I said, of, as opposed to tearing things apart, which is in the early work, I think, you know, this idea of let's bring things together. Let's make it harmonious let them exist together let them you know so there's there's peaceful you know maybe that's what you're saying death there's a peacefulness to me in this piece it's very calm one last
0: question it's a very busy year for Louise Bourgeois for the Eastern Foundation this year because we have the Met show of paintings coming up. There's Jenny Holzer curating a show of her work in Basel. Correct. You know, why are we seeing this this extraordinary moment for
1: Louise? COVID. (laughs) COVID really reorganized a lot of the exhibition. Things were postponed and this was the slot, you know. I mean, they're all very different projects, and that show, as you said, is paintings, and a lot of these paintings have never been seen, and it should be sort of a revelation that Jenny Holzer's take on Louise. Jenny is a very, uh, I think, a fantastic artist, and but it's her look at Louise and the relationship to text, and, you know, Jenny, it's, you know, it's not a show of Jenny's work. It's really about Louise. But she's projecting Louise's text on buildings, you know, so it's really her really looking at Louise's work and really making something extraordinary. She made an incredible catalog, really like an artist's book on Louise's work with her writings and other uh, works from the Kunstmuseum Basel. So they're all very different projects. I mean, the thing about Louise is that there's still so many aspects of the work that you can do. We're not repeating, you know, anyway. So we're doing these shows because they each have a singularity in the field. They're each contributing to understanding, really, something that's quite... Complex that you could rearrange your work in various ways and see different connections. You know, this is Ralph's show, and it's his. You know, but I, I always see new things that I never saw, and that to me is the strength of the work. To be honest, it's not like you can't sort of fix it in a way.
0: Jerry, thank you for joining us. Okay. Louise Bourgeois, The Woven Child, is at the Hayward Gallery in London until the 15th of May. Louise Bourgeois and Jenny Holzer, The Violence of Handwriting Across a Page, is at the Kunstmuseum in Basel from the 19th of February, also until the 15th of May. And Louise Bourgeois Paintings is at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York from the 12th of April until the 7th of August. Coming up, we hear about a burst of contemporary art shows in Saudi Arabia and look at a great abstract painting by Gerhard Richter. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. Tate is to remove the Sackler name from five locations at its two London museums, amid ongoing calls for institutions to distance themselves from the family which manufactured and sold the highly addictive opioid OxyContin through their firm Purdue Pharma. As Christina Ruiz reports, the Sacklers stand accused of misleading doctors and the public about the harms the drug posed in order to maximise their profits. The $13 billion family fortune comes largely from the sale of OxyContin. They deny the allegations. Despite this, the Tate said in 2019 that it would keep the Sackler name in its galleries but it's now reversed this decision and it'll be removed from five places, two at Tate Britain, the central octagon and a gallery and three at Tate Modern, the escalators, lifts and also a gallery. Tate says it was mutually agreed to remove references to the Sackler family during the latest round of updates to the gallery's signage. Members of the crypto art community have accused BuzzFeed News of doxing the founders of the world's most expensive NFT collection, Bored Ape Yacht Club or BAYC, following a report from the news website that revealed their previously hidden identities. A series of 10,000 simian NFTs launched in April 2021, BAYC has a current trading volume of more than $750 million and claims a growing legion of celebrity owners, including Paris Hilton and Justin Bieber. As Kabir Jalla writes in the article published last week, the New York tech journalist Katie Natopolis named the two men behind the online pseudonyms Gordon Gonner and Gargamel as Greg Solano and Wiley Arano, respectively, both from Florida. BAYC supporters and other members of the crypto world accused BuzzFeed and Natopolis of violating the tenets of anonymity that they claim their community depends on. And finally, as Kabir Jalal reports, a security guard at the Yeltsin Centre in Ekaterinburg, Russia, has been charged with vandalising a 20th-century painting after drawing eyes on its faceless figures, less than 24 hours after starting at the gallery. Three figures by the Russian avant-garde artist Anna Leporskaya was at the time on loan from the state Trechikov Gallery in Moscow for an exhibition. News of its defacement broke in December after visitors had alerted gallery staff to small, crudely rendered eyes scribbled on two of the painting's figures in ballpoint pen. This week, following a police investigation, it emerged that the vandal was a security guard employed by a private company. The exhibition's curator, Anna Reshetkina, said that the 60-year-old guard's motives are still unknown and that he had suffered, quote, a lapse in sanity. You can read all these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android, which you can download from the App Store or Google Play. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This month Christie's presents two online-only sales, currently accepting live bids. Bid on the 18th of February on a selection of Latin American art that includes Mexican and South American colonial paintings, alongside works from Miguel Covarrubias, Wilfredo Lam, Francisco Toledo, and other modern and contemporary artists. Bid by the 23rd of February on Martian, lunar and other rare meteorites, such as the third largest piece of the planet Mars on Earth, as well as a meteorite that contains the oldest matter, mankind, touch. Find out more at christies.com. Welcome back. Now, Saudi Arabia is embarking on a soft power drive with an avalanche of contemporary art events, including the Diria Biennale just outside the capital city, Riyadh, the two white sculpture commissions for public art in Riyadh, the Jeddah edition of the roving exhibition Biennale Sur, and the second edition of Desert X Alula, a version of the Californian public art show, which launches in Alula this week. Gareth Harris, our Chief Contributing Editor, has been in Saudi Arabia to find out more, and I spoke to him about what lies behind this burst of contemporary culture. Gareth, you're in Saudi Arabia. What are you there for? Um, I'm here
2: mainly to see the uh, Desert X Alula Sculpture Exhibition. It's the second edition, launching in the historic heritage area of Alula which is the northwest region of Saudi Arabia. It's a bit of an undiscovered treasure. It was really totally inaccessible about 10 or 20 years ago. But in its efforts to open up to the world, the Saudi Arabian government has decided to uh, embark on quite an ambitious cultural initiative in the area, uh, which involves launching 15 what they're calling cultural assets which involve building museums and galleries and other cultural venues across the district. But they've started that process with Desert X Alula, which is their kind of jewel in the crown of cultural events launching this week. Although it's a pretty packed week, I have to say, in terms of other exhibitions. There's an Arts Alula Week. We've been shown around a Alula artist residency programme called Oasis Reborn. But Desert Ex Alula is, is, is the showstopper. So I've, I was taken around the site earlier today.
0: Before we come on to that specific show, it's clearly a massive soft power push, right? It's a big statement to say Saudi Arabia is opening up and interesting things are happening here.
2: Yeah, I mean, it started, I think, around 2017 when the Saudi Arabian government introduced a tourist visa as far as i'm aware it was 2017. i visited saudi arabia in 2017 to see an arts festival called 2139 and the differences between then and now are striking so in 2017 it took me i don't know two or three weeks to get a visa from london i think it took me 10 minutes online this time (laughs) to get an e-visa and i think the way that they are facilitating that process indicates how keen they are for international visitors to to come to the country you know it's so different as well in terms of the changes in society i think women now seem more liberated here as well which is quite striking they don't seem to wear the headscarf as often although i think we need to be quite blunt about this they are probably still living in one of the most oppressive societies in the world still but the the differences are quite Incredible. So in terms of opening up, you're right. I mean, I was struck on the way over to see Nadine Doris sitting just across from me on my flight.
0: This is the UK Culture Minister.
2: UK Culture Minister. I was quite shocked because, obviously, the British government's in a little bit of a state at the moment. So to see Nadine Doris, UK Culture Secretary, on the plane was surprising. Um, I found out she's sure to sign a a memorandum of understanding with the, the Saudi Arabian Culture Ministry, which, by the way... Was only formed about two or three years ago as well (laughs) so in terms of opening up generally they are really pushing on the international front the desert ex alula has many international visitors i've noticed there's a strong curatorial contingent this time from abroad perhaps we could say it's a difficult sell at the moment we can't get around that issue of human rights the journalist jamal khashoggi was murdered in 2018. exactly and it's interesting how that's still in disgust here i mean it's very much under wraps some commentators are saying the moral qualms about discussing that 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 murder are easing i'm not so sure about that obviously we can't discuss it in, in in the open here but i think what is fascinating is the desert ex alula sculpture show is touching on topics which i think had you know possibly a little bit delicate here the artist shazad darwood he's He's made two sculptures, and they look quite incredible. I mean, I cannot overstate how spectacular things look within this setting. <laughs> they are dotted around a rock landscape that's thousands of years old, and I think sometimes it must be art daunting for artists to come here and and take on that challenge. Actually, but Shazal Darwood's done a, an incredible job. He's produced two sculptures, and they're sort of based on they're sort of coral-like forms, and they are sort of a, they have a sensitive surface which reflect the changes in temperature it's meant to reflect I, I guess climate change effects that kind of thing and i did so i suddenly thought about this i thought you know climate change here is still not really an openly discussed topic i'm not sure saudi arabia was the, was the most compliant country at the cop 26 talks recently in glasgow <laughs> so i think the fact that Shazad has has kind of done this you know presented these works on such a public platform is pretty admirable, I have to say. So, I don't know, it's a difficult argument, isn't it, about the human rights abuses. It's unavoidable.
0: Desert X is obviously this LA-based, big sculpture thing that happens in a totally, apparently free society. And now it is the same organisation, but connected to a Saudi organisation within a similar setting. Have you talked to the curators about freedom of expression and about what they're permitted to show and to what extent they were even self-censoring or anything like that?
2: There's a few people I spoke to. I spoke to Nora Alderbadge. She's the Arts and Planning Director at the Royal Commission for Alula, which is the main Saudi governmental body overseeing the whole master plan here. And I, you know, I, I did mention the issue of human rights in passing, really. But of course, she said it's still important to have cross-cultural dialogue, this is the kind of stance they take here. You know, it's important to have a dialogue between artists of different nationalities. Is it better to have a dialogue between artists than not have a dialogue at all? You know, I was looking at Shazal Darwood's piece. I'm glad it's here. I'm glad it's on show in such a public setting. I do think that it's better to begin to have that dialogue than never to have it take place.
0: There will be people who will say that this is a classic case of artwashing. It's presenting spectacular, extraordinary works of art, seductive settings and and it's using art to cover up for appalling human rights abuses but the fact is there are also saudi artists that are represented in this show too aren't there right so you're talking about that dialogue and there is a scene in saudi arabia that is also being displayed here so there are local artists it's not just about using big international names to come over and drop them into the space and and use that to art wash. there are also local artists involved right
2: yeah i mean there are there are saudi artists and i spoke to an artist called dana awatani she's half saudi arabian half palestinian And again, she just just seemed to absolutely relish the opportunity to be here. She just thinks it's a really valuable platform. I spoke as well to a a guy called Sumantro Ghosh. He's the artistic programs director for the Royal Commission for Alula. And he was quite frank, actually. I said to him, is this one very ambitious, (laughs) cynical master plan to better the country's reputation? That kind of thing. He said that, He felt that, you know, the desire to make culture a part of the fabric of Saudi Arabia is a sincere aim. It's not cynical. And he says that's starting at the grassroots here, you know. Art is being taught much more in schools, that kind of thing. I think two or three years ago, the Saudi Arabian government went back to grassroots as such and decided to, to increase the provision for art in schools. I think that comes across a lot. Uh, the Royal Commission for Alula is working with a network of 50 teachers of art. They're training so many local guides in the, in the Alula district, and I think that's very interesting. You know, Some of these people were drivers. Some of them came from some of the communities, the agricultural community. So I can see the benefits on the ground, I have to be honest, in terms of employment and skills. <laughs> if I was being a lot more cynical, I could say that it is obviously trying to, to whitewash certain aspects of the history and politics of the country but I think I have to strike a balance and on balance now I'm here I have to say that I'm, I'm, I'm quite impressed by the the fundamental more grassroots approach the government is taking. I'm more convinced others might not be.
0: One of the interesting things is that Philip Tenari is the chief curator of the Diria Biennale which is another of these events and um, philip tenari is an art curator who's worked in china worked for a long time in china and he's he in your article made comparisons between china opening up and saudi opening up can you say more about that
2: yeah i mean i think it's that is utterly fascinating i went to the diria biennale earlier this week it's in um, an area called the Jax district on the outskirts of Riyadh, which i think was uh, it, it consists of you know, lots of warehouses, it was quite an industrial part. So I had in advance read an article in the art newspaper by a colleague called Melissa Gronland. She wrote a piece for our, I think it was December issue. And she does a very good job actually of summarizing how Tinari approaches the biennial and how he tries to draw analogies between China and Saudi Arabia. I think that's a really interesting comparison to make because What he's trying to do is uh, establish parallels between Saudi Arabia and China in the late 1970s when China faced a, a sort of similar relaxation of social and legal restrictions. You could argue that Saudi Arabia is going through a similar sort of phase, I have to say, in terms of the huge economic and social transformations Saudi is going through at the moment as well. He's, he's trying to draw very intelligent, I think, parallels between the two countries. And he does it under a thematic umbrella called Feeling the Stones, which I think is a Chinese proverb for trying to establish a strategy for coping, for trying to find your way through what, I suppose, is a, the new more open climate as such. And it is interesting because he's brought in a few Chinese artists. He's filled it the biennial with mainly Saudi artists, and it's good. I mean, he, he manages to show historic, social, economic differences and similarities between the two countries. I think he told Melissa at the time, how do you think about or contextualise the very specific and very precious energy of this moment of optimism and openness? As Melissa points out, it's still a bit of a gamble because China's internal on to whatever you want to call it, quickly seized up, I guess, post-1980s, you could argue. I'm not sure, we're probably going through a more authoritarian phase now with China. I think so, in a sense, perhaps China's closing down, in a sense, especially if you look at areas like Hong Kong, where censorship is on the rise. It is a bit of a gamble to to take that thematic approach, but, you know, again, they, they really are pleased The Biennial is happening. It was very busy when I went. There seems to be plenty of public art programming, I should mention that. There seems to be a real effort to attract local audiences. They are very much marketing it as Saudi's first contemporary art biennial. And although Desert X, you know, should be taking place every two years, we should say that really. But yeah.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because the comparison with China is troubling but it is also informative because on the one hand outside of China many Chinese artists now have a profile that they never had before that opening up and so that so the local communities of artists have gained great exposure and become really prominent artists across the world but on the other hand as you say we we've reported on this podcast about what's going on in Hong Kong what's going on with the genocide of the Uyghur people and just because artists are finally having a chance to show their work doesn't mean that the human rights abuses don't continue. And I suppose that's the means by which we're going to judge Saudi's efforts in the future, isn't it? That that fundamentally what the rest of the world wants to see from Saudi is a permanent relaxation, human rights abuses being ended, as well as a cultural opening up.
2: Yeah, I mean, I suppose isn't that the most difficult paradox any kind of society faces, especially one that's been as authoritarian as this one in the past you know you try to open up to the world and yet we know that issues still remain but as i said there are still differences i, th- I think the women seem to be more liberated how this unfurls i'm not so sure and you know one of the questions I kept asking all the different curators, some of the artists is, who will come? Because at this point in time, Alula being very much marketed as a luxury experience really. I think that's much more manageable from the point of view of the number of people they want to let in. Because if it's luxury, it's high-end, obviously you have to have the money <laughs> to be able to afford it. Um, it's, you know, it's interesting, this is not a backpacker's territory at all at the moment. There's a limited number of flights, I suppose. So how will it be marketed and, and what route will they take? And then I ask everyone as well, who benefits? And that's a difficult one for a lot of people to answer. I suppose ultimately the artists do benefit. And as you've just mentioned, in terms of basic exposure, this is going to put them out there, as it did for those Chinese artists of a generation previously. Yeah. But I'm not so sure how this will pan out long term, you know, because What you're asking is that basic society and governmental policy changes in terms of the treatment of minority groups. But how will that change? I'm not so sure. I'm not an expert on Saudi governmental policy, but that is not going to be transformed or change overnight. But I may be being blunt and rather naive on that one, but I would be cynical, I think.
0: Just to return to the UK Memorandum of Understanding with Saudi Arabia what does that mean is there anything tangible that was given to you as an example of how the UK and Saudi are going to work together
2: no it wasn't I did inquire actually I went to the department of culture in the UK and they give me quite a stock statement I asked the ministry of culture here in Saudi Arabia and they I mean they they didn't comment further on the proposed partnership but uh, the UK department for digital culture and media the DCMS says Nadine Doris is in the region to strengthen ties in sports, tourism and the arts. What was interesting, I'm not sure I mentioned this at the beginning, she signed a memorandum at the Diria Biennale. <laughs> so that was quite strange as well because I didn't expect her to, to turn up there, to be honest. But she did uh, do it against a really stunning backdrop, actually, of a work by the Saudi artist Zahra al It's called The Birth of a Place and it, it sort of looks like a, a load of Stalactites. And it was all about the gentrification of the, the Jax district area. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't really get more details about what the memorandum might mean. I think it comes at an interesting point in time for both governments, as I say. Perhaps the beleaguered UK government felt the need to have a soft power offensive at this point in time. I'm not sure. But again, for Saudi, it's part of a complete rebranding. And I think I mentioned in my online piece that there's just an avalanche of arts events here at the minute, and it's hard to single out certain ones. But the Desert ex is one of the main ones. But I did speak to an unnamed UK curator who again raised the issue of the LGBTQ rights when he saw the news about the Doris signing and, and reminded me that the homosexuality remains prohibited in Saudi Arabia. So there you go.
0: Lastly, you did mention that the Desert X show is, is spectacular. Give us a flavour of, of a couple of other artworks in that show.
2: As I said, you sort of come across one piece and then you think it can't be better, it'll be more spectacular, and then you walk through the canyon and there's another just as spectacular piece and it's quite overwhelming. You know, how to single things out is difficult, but there's a sort of golden waterfall as such sort of hanging down one of the rock faces, and this installation is by a, an artist from Ghana called Serge Atakoui Kloti. It's a, he sort of shrouded the rock in crafted tapestries made from yellow quaffer gallons, which I think are plastic containers used in Ghana. So it's kind of like a sort of a yellow waterfall running, running down the rock face, and it's hard to describe. I mean, you have to see it to believe it, but that really stands out. And then there's an absolutely incredible piece further down the canyon by an artist called Stephanie Duma. And she has literally dug out of the ground, out of the sand, a greenhouse. She's created a subterranean greenhouse and she's put a whole array of solar panels on the top, which are kind of, kind of mounted flush with the desert floor, which is feeding a bed of plants inside, inside the greenhouse. And you kind of go in and it's a sanctuary in the coolest possible sense in that the temperature is low it just drops when you walk in and it's just a feat of engineering i mean i have asked if any of these uh, works will be permanent because four or five pieces from the last Desertex in 2020 are permanent so i think that's still to be decided but Stephanie Dumas underground greenhouse must stay surely i hope they decide that it should be a permanent piece because it's amazing
0: Gareth, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Desert X Alula continues until the 30th of March and the Diria Biennale until the 11th of March. You can read Gareth Harris's reports from Saudi Arabia on the website and the app. And finally, the German artist Gerhard Richter was 90 years old on the 9th of February and to mark his birthday, two exhibitions of his work opened in Germany this week. A show of his artist books at the Neue National Gallery in Berlin and portraits glass abstracts at the Albertinum in Dresden, the city in which Richter was born in 1932. The Albertinum Show has been selected by Richter himself and it includes the work Fels or Rock, a vast abstract painting from 1989. Dietmar Elger, the curator of the Gerhard Richter Archive in Dresden, worked with the artist on the show and I spoke to him about this landmark abstract work. Dietmar, it's Gerhard Richter's 90th birthday and you're doing a special display. Can you just tell us how you've done it? Because Gerhard Richter is directly involved, isn't he?
3: Yes, it is. Um, we started very early because we wanted to have his 19th birthday exhibition so I asked him that uh, he's doing this exhibition with us and we we started to try to do an exhibition on his foundation that he uh, founded um, only recently but then we noticed that too many works had been shown in Dresden before so we Uh, stopped that idea and it took some time then and um, suddenly Gerhard came up with uh, the new idea with the free spaces and he uh, called me and uh, asked me to come over and have a look at it and it was an exhibition with free spaces and free themes that he shows and so it's mostly his exhibition and uh, his choice how the exhibition looks like now
0: that 's interesting, and you 've chosen to talk about the work fells um, which is which is an abstract painting i 'd like to begin just by talking about what role Gerhard sees the abstract paintings as playing in in his wider earth, because he thinks about the range of works that he makes as a very complex entity doesn 't he and he, he sees them in relation to each other
3: yes that 's correct, and um, the abstract paintings are the vast part of his work. Um, I would say even more than half of all his uh, paintings, sculptures, are um, uh, abstract, and are these abstract works that we know at his uh, abstracts. So there are other abstracts like uh, the the grey ones or the in, in paintings, but the abstract paintings, which is caught like this as a group, are the which are mostly colorful and uh, with a rich variety of composition. This is a, a specific group in the abstract works and it's surely half of this whole body of work.
0: Yeah and and he makes these paintings using a squeegee. Can you say something about that technique?
3: So the, the squeegee uh, brings some chance in his uh, abstract works and that is very important for him. So he uses it and he corrects it uh, so you cannot control the squeezy yeah you you use it and um, you put it on the on the canvas and the structure it brings to to the painting cannot really be controlled so and then he has something that is chance is um, very important for him and uh, after the squeezy was used then he controls it and he changes it and then he goes on with a squeezy and ch- chance is, uh, again, part of the c- composition. And so it's it's between chance and control. So it's like nature, yeah? Lots of chance in these works.
0: Yeah, and of course, in, in this work that we're talking about, Fels, the movement of the squeegee is down the canvas as opposed to across it, isn't it? And that's quite significant, isn't it?
3: Yeah, you, you, you can recognise the squeezy from this very tiny points that it uh, leaves it's not like a brush Uh, it's it's it has a more mechanical structure and in these uh, felts that we uh, want to speak about you also see this and uh, the squeezy was mostly used from top to bottom
0: does he move it all the way does he always move it all the way from the top to the bottom or will he will he start it sometimes in the middle of the canvas is are there any rules he applies for instance
3: yeah, he, he uses it also uh, horizontally. And uh, sometimes if it's a smaller squeezy, there they are sizes from like 30 centimeter up to 2 metres, then he can also move it back and forth, and um, they are more flexible to use. But with the large ones, they are very stable. So he goes from left to right, or he goes from top to bottom and they are more um, mechanical, they look more mechanical.
0: And Fels, of course, means rock, and it's obviously tempting for us to see images within the work because it, he's given it that title, but does he in any way relate it to the actual phenomenon of, of a rock or stone?
3: Yes, if he finds something that, uh, like, a, like a hook where he finds some, some detail that reminds him of uh, something in nature... Um, then he um, gives it a title, and otherwise, or mostly, they are untitled and just called abstract painting.
0: And this, of course, this painting is enormous, isn't it? It's about—is th- it three meters high? Yes,
3: it is, and two meter fifty wide.
0: That's extraordinary. Can you tell us about the experience of standing in front of it?
3: Oh, it's 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 overwhelming. It's it's a, it's a great painting, and you drive deep into it and you you actually uh, recognize something like a rock in this structure because it has a darker lower part and a lighter upper part so it looks like a rock standing in front of you and uh, like a like a horizon in the back
0: and of course it has a real significance to to Gerhard doesn't it because on the one hand yes he's chosen it as one of these works in this show but also he gave it to benefit the Albertinum didn't he
3: Yes, so this was the main reason maybe he put it in the show because it has this close relationship to dresden and the show is in Dresden and uh, this uh, is the most important painting that we have in our collection it's It's only a loan from a private collection nevertheless it's in Dresden since twenty years, and it's very much related to the whole history of Gerhard and uh, Dresden and his return to Dresden. So it it, it came uh, to us uh, f- as part of a charity auction that was held after the flood in Dresden and uh, most of the museum was uh, underwater. And then there was a charity auction. Richter gave this um, big painting for this charity auction and it uh, raised an enormous price. And the collector who bought it, after he bought it, said to our general director, Martin Roth, uh, that he is willing to give this painting as a long-term loan to the, the Dresden Museum. And then Martin Roth uh, contacted Richter and asked him to contribute other loans and uh, to make a bigger installation in Dresden with um, free spaces and this was the beginning of Gerhard's return to Dresden and the archive was founded uh, a few years later.
0: That's great and of course as it's shown in the exhibition as you say there are three rooms one of the key things in this very personal selection is that there are very personal images there were images of, of Gerhard's family and that's again this sort of crucial thing about Richter's work is that there's a to and fro between the representational and then the, this kind of abstract painting right? yes.
3: This is uh, still going on, and it's uh, during his whole oeuvre of 60 years. There's this relationship or this contrapunt between abstract works and figurative uh, works, like landscape of portraits. And in this uh, exhibition that we have now, there is this um, one room with abstract works and one room that has uh, figurative works. The key Painting maybe in this exhibition is his self-portrait from the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And uh, around his self-portrait, there's his whole family with his wife and his children. So it's a very personal selection that he did for the exhibition.
0: Did he tell you about how it felt to look back over a career at, at the point of his ninetieth birthday? He's, I mean, he's he he always seems to me as to be a very unsentimental painter, a very in a way of he looks very rigorously at his work and doesn't seem to involve sentiment. But it, still, it must be quite a momentous thing for him as, at reaching ninety and looking back over his career.
3: It surely, is we haven't spoken actually about that, but it is has some kind of uh, sentimental because he's. Uh, collecting his uh, family around him. But on the other side, you're correct, he's a very unsentimental uh, painter or an artist because several of these works that showing his family, like his self-portray or paintings of his wife and also one of his children's uh, images, he, he has sold and uh, he's very unsentimental about these images because they, he gave them away and just uh, sold them like, like any abstract work. Dietmar,
0: thank you for telling us about this great work.
3: Thank you for your interest.
0: Fels is in Portraits, Glass, Abstractions at the Albertinum in Dresden until the 1st of May and Gerhard Richter, Artist Books, is at the Neue National Gallery in Berlin until the 29th of May. You can see the painting and Richter's entire output on his official website and that's at gerhard-richter.com and that's all for this episode we're on twitter at Town audio and on facebook and instagram of course the week in art is produced by julia mahalska amy dawson henrietta Bentel, and david clack and david is also the editor and sound designer thanks also to daniela hathaway and to this week's guests jerry gareth and deep and thank you for joining us see you next week bye for now